Well, do uh, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, page 1226 is the uh, page number, the reading that Dave read for us just a little bit earlier in the service. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, page 1226. On this uh, Advent Sunday, I'm reminded of a, a former colleague of mine whose waking thought every day was this. Is it resurrection morning this morning, Lord? Every day he woke up with the expectation that Jesus might return today, and indeed he longed for that day. Still does. That attitude is a great challenge for us, because as Christians we really should be looking forward to the appearing of Jesus. Not just as a doctrine we remember once a year in the lead up to Christmas, but as the focus and goal of our lives. And if we do that, it will change the way we live. And that's John's application here. Look at chapter 3 of 1 John and verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, that's his coming again in glory, we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, the Lord Jesus, is pure. Do you see, with the hope, the expectation of the appearing of Jesus, we will purify ourselves, says John. And that was the hope of the Christians John was writing to. That's what they were looking for, living for no less. The day when Jesus returns, when he comes to earth not as a baby but as the judge of the world, coming on the clouds with power and great glory, coming to wrap up history as we know it, coming to usher in the new age of peace in the new creation. What a day! And so John says, Christian, be longing for Christ's appearing. Be longing for Christ's appearing. Indeed, John expects Christians to be longing for that day. Chapter 3, verse 3 again, that is our hope. That is what we're waiting for, he says to Christian people. Or we should be, because, well, because of the state of the world. You see, John knows that Christians simply cannot be at home in this world. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, Now now don't misunderstand this language. As John speaks negatively of the world, he doesn't mean by the world the created earth, the hills and the flowers, the trees and the wildlife that we can see out of the windows. When he writes in chapter 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, he's not suggesting that we cannot appreciate and enjoy beautiful relationships or the arts or sport. All that is magnificent. No, John uses the word world in a particular way. Now that's clear as we look at the next verse in chapter 2, verse 16. The world is everything in rebellion to God, what we might call worldliness. See it there, verse 16? The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. That's the world 
in John's thinking. And the Christian simply can't be at home in a world of materialism, hedonism and self-promotion because the world is against God and it contaminates us spiritually just as polonium-210 contaminates the body physically. Every day we are bombarded by advertising screaming at us to pamper ourselves because you're worth it. To put ourselves first. That's what the world tells us. As a little boy, I was brought up to believe that I should make something of myself. And that didn't flow from the the helpful and positive belief that I was made in the image of God and that I should flourish and reach my full potential as a human being. No, that came from a philosophy that taught me that I was the centre of the universe and everything and everyone should revolve around me. That's what the world teaches us and seduces us to be like. Living in that world, the Christian will long for, indeed hope for, the appearing of Jesus. That's John's expectation. As I've considered this this week, it's been a gentle rebuke to me. I wonder if it is to you. I do love the world too much. I love the world and the things of the world. And I guess that's why I don't begin each day longing for resurrection morning. Somebody described themselves to me this week as, a, as an Advent freak. I'm not. And I should be. I should be longing for that day. Why am I not? Because I'm wedded to the world. That's why I'm not excited as I should be about the Advent and the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm more prepared to embrace the world these days. I can remember when, as a new Christian, I'd be on my guard when I went to the cinema. I was prepared to walk out of the film if it was sexually explicit or violent or contained bad language. Uh, Last week, my brother David was uh, was, uh, with me and uh, he was a challenge to me without even trying to be in the way he was cautious about a video he was considering watching. He took the rating on the box seriously. I used to consider those things far more than I do now. You see, the constant battle to stand against those things wears us down. And we will either give in and stop fighting against them, or we'll keep standing against them. And if we keep standing against them, it will be such a battle that we will long for the day when Jesus appears. When all the struggles against this worldliness will be finally finished. What a day that will be. We won't really long for it, though, if if we're living too much in the world, will we? And with that great hope before us, that that, that one day Jesus will appear and he will decontaminate the world and destroy all evil and start again with the new creation, with that great hope before us, we'll be encouraged to keep striving for purity because we'll know it's not a hopeless aim. See, if we don't have the hope of the the coming of Christ, if we're struggling to be pure, we'll just say, I can't can't keep it up, it's just too hard. But if we know that day's coming, we'll strive for purity. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The Advent season is a great time for us to reassess where we're at on this. Could it be that we don't long for the appearing of Christ because we've made our home in the world? 
at the uh, church family prayer meeting on Wednesday and, and it was tremendous to see so many people there. It was a great encouragement. The church family prayer meeting on Wednesday, we prayed for the persecuted church in Iraq. I'm so grateful to uh, Jill Manifold who's, who's helping us to, to pray for the persecuted church all over the world every time we meet once a month for our prayer gathering. Now, let me read some of the things that we read on Wednesday. In Iraq, Christian women are being forced to dress as Muslims and many have been killed for failing to do this. Church leaders are being kidnapped and killed and one described the situation as Christians are living in panic and they are terrified of more attacks. Well, we prayed for the persecuted church in in Iraq and then we sang the Advent hymn that we'll be singing at the end of our service, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Saviour, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Come, Lord Jesus, everlasting God, come down. And as we sang those words, because we've just been praying for them, I was imagining an Iraqi Christian singing it, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yes, they really do long for Jesus to return, if they're in that situation, don't they? They are not tempted to love the world at all. They long for him to appear. First then, Christian, be longing for Christ's appearing. Second, be confident at Christ's appearing. You see, we'll only hope for Jesus' return if we're ready for it. Prepared and confident that when Jesus appears, we'll not be caught out. That's why John writes, as he does here, to give these Christians confidence about the appearing of Jesus or confidence at the appearing of Jesus. See how this section begins in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Being caught out is a terrible experience, isn't it? As a schoolboy of six or seven, I can remember the head teacher catching me catching me putting bugs in a little girl's pencil case when she wasn't looking. That was my first bad experience of being caught out. When I first left, left school, I worked in a bank. Um, it was then called the Midland Bank. Remember the phrase, the listening bank? I never really listened very much, but anyway. I'll never forget the bank manager walking into the office when I was doing my impression of an, of an orangutan. <laughs> I was standing on the desk at the time. It is a terrible thing to be caught out. One of the most distressing moments of my life was to visit a home just after a little while after the wife had discovered her husband was having an adulterous affair. I'll never forget how ashamed he was. He couldn't look at her. He couldn't look at his daughter. He couldn't look at me. He'd been found out and he didn't know what to do with himself. That's the horror that John wants us to avoid in verse 28. Dear children, continue in Christ so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed. We need not be ashamed when Jesus appears. We need not be caught out. How how awful on judgment day to be found out as someone who wasn't living for Christ. Do you see, the thought of the appearing of Jesus should motivate us to never find ourselves in that position. 
but to be ready for Jesus' return. And that is such a crucial issue for John's first readers. You see, John is not doubting that they're ready. He's speaking to Christian people. But he does need to reassure his first readers that they are ready for the day of Christ. He wants them to know that, verse 28, when Jesus appears, we may be confident and unashamed. In the Greek, uh, John is using a play on words here. John's ch- uh, God's children should have parousia, confidence, at the parousia, his appearing. We should have parousia at the parousia, confidence it is appearing. And how crucial it was for these dear Christians to be given that kind of confidence. Because, you see, false teachers had come in among them. And these false teachers would have stripped them of all their confidence in the Christian life. People had come among them who were, who were trying to lead them astray. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, he says. These imposters called themselves Christians. They, they set themselves up as leaders. They were, in fact, against Jesus. John uses very strong language against these people. He actually calls them antichrist. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. How can we know when people are Antichrist? Well, let me assure you, it's far more subtle than it appears. My guess is that when we think of Antichrist, we imagine the, the grotesque, apocalyptic figure causing mayhem, shouting abuse against Jesus, attacking Christians. If that had been the case, these Christians would have spotted them a mile off, wouldn't they? They weren't stupid. Being Antichrist is far more subtle than that, or can be. See, look again very carefully at chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, writes John. Now listen carefully, that is, they went out from the apostles. They left the apostles' teaching, departing from the things that they had taught. That's Antichrist. Being unfaithful to the apostles' message, being unfaithful to the Bible, that's Antichrist. Now isn't that a shock for us? And remarkably contemporary. Just as then, today, there are leaders in the church that don't believe the apostles' message. Those who refuse to believe the things the apostles said and taught. Just this week, I was reading a piece on the internet, a piece posted by a dean of cathedral in another diocese, which questions the virgin birth as a literal event. Well, that's verse 19, going out from the apostles. As we head into Christmas, we do realise the virgin births, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth is so crucial, don't we? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he was not immaculately, immaculately conceived, he was just a man. If he was just a man, he was, he was not divine. If he was not divine, he was not perfect. If he was not perfect, he cannot bear the sins of the world. And if he cannot bear the sins of the world, the gospel collapses and you and I are in our sins and we are heading for hell. 
That's why that kind of teaching is antichrist. And that is why we say in the creed the words we say, because the creeds were put together against these kinds of false teachers. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. It's, it, it's so crucial, we can't let that doctrine go, do you see? Well, the imposters in the church in John's day had strayed from the apostles' teaching. Some of you will know they were, they were Gnostics. They claimed to have a deeper knowledge of God than the apostles. They claimed to be able to take you deep into the things of God in a way that the apostles never could. Oh no, the Bible's not enough. We can, we can take you deeper. Their teaching was all very secretive. It, was, it wasn't plain and clear. You had to come to them to be in. To be in on the secret. And until you came to them, you were missing out on something significant in the Christian life. You'd have been left feeling that you were something of a second-class Christian. Their teaching kept you in the dark until you went to them. Until they locked you into their way. That's why I think John began his letter the way he did in chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. See, in Christ you're not in the dark and you don't have to be. And beware anybody who does do anything that is secretive and dark. And you see, when these people like, uh, people like these imposters are around, it leaves you very uncertain. Have you been around people like that? Eventually you lack confidence in your Christian faith. Am I really believing the right things? Am I really a child of God? I've experienced this very thing myself, having spent time with a man whose teaching is controversial. A man who who gathered many young, impressionable people around him who when they were around him and when they believed what he taught, he left them feeling this sense of they were in the know. Yeah, they know stuff that other Christians don't really know. Which made them feel very good about themselves. But if you were not part of that group, you were left feeling like a second-class Christian, left in the dark. And having been around this man for some time, I, I, I was left feeling very uncertain. And let me tell you, this didn't happen to me as a young Christian. But as a Christian of 20 years standing, having been to theological college and been in the ordained ministry for 10 years. See, being left uncertain about things, you are only one step away from questioning your own salvation then, aren't you? Do you see how dangerous this was? It's hard for Christians who've been exposed to this kind of group group who speak of an experience or a knowledge or a special teaching that you have to have to be really in the Christian life. It leaves people outside the group very uncertain about their standing before the Lord. And the Christians John was writing to would have felt that very keenly. Uncertain if they were real Christians because of the teaching of these imposters. And they certainly then wouldn't have looked forward to the return of Christ, would they? Not with any confidence, because they weren't even sure they were real Christians now. And John wants to deliver them from that and to give them confidence about that day. So how do we have paresia at the parousia, confidence at his appearing? It's not by knowing the Greek, by the way. I've just realised what I've done. How pathetic was that? 
It's certainly not by discovering some deeper knowledge. No, it's remarkably straightforward. And after that big build-up, you might be quite disappointed. But don't be. Look at verse 28 again. And now, dear children, continue in him. Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. Or as the English Standard Version translates it, abide in him. It's as simple as that. Continue in Christ. Abide in Christ. If your life is in him, you can have confidence at his appearing. Abide in him. John is surely thinking of Jesus' own words back in, well, John's Gospel. John chapter 15. We had it read earlier. Do do, uh, look it up, if you will, with me. It's uh, page 1083. You'll know these words well. We've had them read, but you'll know them well anyway if you've been around Christian things for a little while. As he speaks about abiding in him, I'm sure these words were in his mind. Page 1083. See, in John 15, Jesus takes us to the world of horticulture. Or if that's not your thing, he simply takes us for a walk in the garden. Look at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And then here's the word, remain in me, abide in me, and I will remain or abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him he will bear much fruit but apart from me you can do nothing you see Jesus talks about the organic union between the stem and the branches what he's saying is not complicated at all is it? a branch cannot survive if it is cut off from the stem well we all know that when we prune our roses cut a branch off and it will die being attached Remaining attached to the stem keeps the branch alive and it's the only way to stay alive. It's exactly the same spiritually. To be alive I must be connected to him. I must abide in him. And if I am connected to him then I am alive spiritually. End of issue. And so as we return to 1 John 2, the point is simple. It is not having some special, deeper knowledge that keeps us alive. It's abiding in Christ that we need, remaining in him. And, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are abiding in him, you can be absolutely confident at his appearing. You won't be caught out. Abiding in him then, chapter 1 verse 28, is the only way to be confident at Christ's appearing. And what does it mean to abide in him? Well, two things. Abide in him by staying with the apostles. So you turn back with me to the beginning of the letter, chapter 1 verse 3. We've thought of it already, but it's worth underlining it. Chapter 1 verse 3, John says... We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with Jesus 
comes from fellowship with the apostles. If we have fellowship with the apostles, that is if we agree with the things that they teach, if we agree with the Bible, then we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Because the apostles have fellowship with God. You see that in chapter 1 verse 3. And John wrote as he did, he began this letter the way he did, to reassure Christians that they were in fellowship with God, that they didn't need some deeper Gnostic knowledge. And he wrote as he did to expose the impostors as frauds. We know Jesus through the Bible. But please don't misunderstand, this is not some just intellectual assent. Abiding in him will be to be spending time with him in the word. As we spend time in the scriptures, we spend time with him. I mean, do do you believe that? Michael Bourne, the uh, former Bishop of Chester, said this, 90% of the pastoral problems I've encountered in 33 years of ministry have as their root cause the fact that Christians have stopped praying and reading their Bible each day. That is a remarkable thing to say. 90% of the pastoral problems I've encountered in 33 years of ministry have as their root cause the fact that Christians have stopped praying and reading their Bible each day. The daily quiet time is essential if we're to abide in Christ. Because it's in reading the Bible that we know him. In the Bible we hear him speak to us. In prayer we speak to him. And living as we should will flow out of time with him. Advent should spur us on to check ourselves. Are we abiding in him? Are we still believing the right things? Are we still in step with the Spirit? Are we still living as we should? Are we still having a quiet time? It's remarkable how many Christians have given up that crucial habit of spending time with Jesus daily. It's remarkable how many Christians have never even started that. Well, maybe it's not remarkable. Maybe it's church leaders' fault because they don't tell Christians that that's how they should start and continue the Christian life. Well, this Advent would be a great time to begin if you've never done that or to start again if you've given up doing it. Do you have daily Bible reading notes? These ones are for teenagers, but there's some great ones in the same series called Explore. I think they're the best on the market. Why don't you get some of those? That would be a great way to start Advent. Daily Bible reading. And for those of you who've been uh, doing this sort of reading for some years, let me encourage you to go deeper. Not in a Gnostic way, but just to push yourself a bit. my, My daily quiet times took off after some years of reading daily Bible reading notes when I got out a simple commentary and started to go through something like this. It takes longer. But do you want to abide in him? So that you're confident when he appears? That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Christian, be encouraged. If you're abiding in Christ... And I don't know you all, but I know many of you now, and I know you are. Be confident, you will be confident and unashamed at his coming. You can look forward to his appearing. And that is a remarkable thing when we consider what that day will be like.
There's no need to turn to it, but let me read for you now what that day will be like. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the lamb, the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand on that day when kings and generals and rich and mighty are running for their lives, who can stand? Those who abide in Christ can. You and I can. If we abide in Christ, we can be confident on that. Just stand confident on that day. How amazing is that? Others shrinking away. And because of the wonderful death of the Lord Jesus, we can hold our head up, confident in him. Only the gospel does that for us. So, in this Advent season, remain in him, abide in him. And if you abide in him, you will bear the family likeness. See, that's verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John is doing two things here. He's exposing the the imposters, the false teachers. They are not living righteous lives, though they are clearly not abiding in the one who is righteous. I had reason to meet with a senior churchman on two separate occasions recently. The same man, two different occasions. And to my shock and horror, on both occasions he swore. On neither occasion was he angry. Bad language was just part of his vocabulary. And it was bad language. Now what does that say of him? Verse 29, if you know that Christ is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See, the habit of righteousness is the proof of the relationship. Oh, not the way I get into the relationship, but the proof of it. See, when you know the family likeness, you can spot the family members. Now, at the end of the service last week, one or two people asked me, was that your dad in church this morning? He was sitting down there and a few keen-eyed people spotted him. Doesn't he look like you, they said. Well, yes, he does. He's a handsome fellow. (laughs) See, for us, the family likeness is, is, is physical. For the Christian, it's spiritual. The imposters boasted of special knowledge of God, of a way into the deeper things of God, of really knowing God. John says the family likeness of righteousness is the mark of being in the family. When you live righteous lives, then people will know you're really born of God. What does righteousness mean? Well, it means, I guess, everything that God is. It means forgiving people when they've wronged us because that's how the Father treats us. 
It means bearing with, with, with others when they don't match our own expectations because that's how the Lord deals with us. It means loving people even though they're not very loving because that's how the Lord has acted towards us. Bearing the family likeness is the mark that you're in the family and abiding in him. And John assures his readers that they are in the family. Chapter 3, verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The sentence actually begins with the word look or see. John is saying, take time to contemplate what I'm about to write. Just, just wait a minute, just think on this for a moment. You ready? And then he writes it. How great is the love of the Father that has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That should take our breath away. We should be left asking, what kind of love is this to be called a child of God? Christian, have you got over that fact yet? That the God of the whole universe should call you his child. My, my little Joshua loves the idea that I'm his daddy. I heard him telling, I've often heard him telling his little friends, that's my daddy. The whole sentence goes like this, that's my daddy, he's not your daddy, that's my daddy. Three and a half year old Joshua is very excited about being my son. And I'm making the most of it because when he's a teenager. <laughs> John is doing the same here with Christians. Christian, just think about it for a moment. Rejoice that you are a child of God. That you can say of the Father, the Lord God Almighty, that's my daddy. I'm his child. See, think on that, he says here. That means you're adopted. He has taken you into the family and given you all the rights and privileges of being in the family. Doesn't that give you confidence at his appearing? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, verse 1, that, he should be, that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Again, do you see why he wrote it? Why he wrote it? The imposters had called that into question. You're only a child of God when... Well, when you're in their group, when you know the deep things that they're teaching about. No, says John, you are children of God because you abide in him and because you're bearing the family likeness of righteous living. And if others don't acknowledge that, well, don't be surprised because the world has never been any good at spotting Christians and there's a good reason for that and it's at the end of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, did not know Christ. As John wrote at the beginning of his Gospel, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. See, John points out that if they didn't know Jesus, they won't recognise us as God's children. But that is what we are, he says. Verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the hope we have. When he appears, we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And so on that great day when we're transformed into his likeness, when we look at Jesus, it will be like looking into a mirror. Can you believe that? As we look at him, we'll be seeing ourselves. Can you believe that one day you'll be pure and righteous and loving and humble and compassionate and just like Jesus and everything that you, you want to be? 
So we end where we began. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Are you looking forward to the appearing of Jesus? Are you going to become an Advent freak? I think I am. If you're abiding in him, you will look forward to that day because you have total confidence of it. And with that great thought filling our horizon, we will keep fighting against the pull of the world that will keep striving to pull us away. But we will keep striving to be pure until that great day when everything is finally as it should be. Let's pray together. Continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the glorious gospel that means that as we trust in the Lord Jesus, we can be absolutely certain, absolutely confident that when he returns, we can stand. We pray that you'd help us to be confident and then to be aiming and living for that great day. Help us to strive for purity. Help us to watch out for false teachers. Help us to run away from worldliness and help us to keep our eyes fixed on that great day for your name's sake. Amen.